And the message I will, be, I will bring is actually based on Stephen's recommendation. So Stephen is telling me what to preach tonight. <laughs> he asked me if I would focus on 1 Thessalonians 2.4. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.4 again. Thank you, Mr. Carver, for reading this. Thank you for being a part of this. It's a huge blessing to have you here. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Entrusted, and the phrase that I want you to look at is entrusted with the gospel. I remember the first time that phrase had an impact upon me. I was in maybe the last year of Clearwater Christian College where Mr. Carver taught. And I was thinking about going to seminary, considered different, different seminaries, uh, Baptist Bible College in Clark, Pennsylvania, where Stephen went. I thought about that one, by the way. Thought about Biblical Theological Seminary. In uh, Hatfield, Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia, uh, Mr. Carver would go there years later, as it turned out. I never went there. never went to either one of them. Mr. Carver would go there much later to get an advanced degree to build on the one he already had at Faith Theological Seminary, originally. And so, uh, by the way, Mr. Carver, while you were at Biblical, we prayed for you, just as you asked us to. Um, Why do I bring up Biblical Theological Seminary? Well, the verse they had for their motto on their catalog was this, and it simply said, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, it simply said this, entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with the gospel. I thought of it, those words made a big impact upon me. I thought of those words, Stephen, quite a bit, and I realized as I thought of that, entrusted with the gospel, think about those words. I thought, what a privilege it is to be entrusted with the gospel, but on the other hand, what an awesome responsibility it is to be entrusted with the gospel. And this is the verse Stephen has asked me to focus on, in particular tonight. Now, I want you to know as I do that, that this message tonight is for Stephen personally, preaching his ordination charge. And since this is, uh, but nevertheless, I want everybody else to listen. You can listen in, by the way, if you would like to. You can listen in and allow the word of God to perform its work in you who believe, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Now tonight, Stephen, and everybody else listening in, I want us to consider what a steward of the gospel is, because one entrusted with the gospel is a steward, what a steward of the gospel is, and secondly, what a steward of the gospel does. First of all, what a steward of the gospel is, verse 4 again, says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Now a steward is one to whom a trust has been committed. It means you've been given a responsibility to carry out. Someone has committed something valuable to your care. Uh, You've been placed over something, a specific duty. In a word, a steward is a manager. He manages something. Now, in the New Testament, that was often thought of in connection with a household because a a steward was was someone who would be assigned or appointed by an owner of a household to take care of the affairs of the house. I mean, the steward had great responsibility. He oversaw all the affairs of the house the finances, the, uh, the servants, the children and their education, uh, the upbringing of the children, uh, every, the property, everything. He, he looked after the fields, everything. He had, a, he had to answer to the owner. This, is a, this was a very uh, serious job he had, and he had a great responsibility. Now, Paul and his companions, look at chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, it says. Silvanus and Silas, by the way. Paul and Silas and Timothy were stewards. They were stewards. They were managers. But their stewardship was unique in this respect. They were stewards of the gospel, stewards of the gospel of Christ. They were entrusted with the weightiest of responsibilities, that of the gospel itself. They were entrusted with this responsibility. They had to proclaim the gospel. They had to protect the gospel from error and 
defended from error. They had to evangelize the lost with the gospel. They had to edify the saints with the gospel. This is a, a tremendous trust. They were given a sacred trust. And who appointed them? Was it men that appointed them to, the, to this sacred trust? Well, men eventually recognized their appointment and saw that these men were indeed stewards of the gospel. Verse 4 says this, Just as we have been approved by who? By God, right? By God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul and his companions were approved by God, thus they were appointed by God to be stewards of his gospel. So did they have to go through some process? Yes, they did. We'll never know the exact details of what happened in this process, but suffice it to say this, they had to meet with God's approval in order to do this job. The word approved here has to do with being carefully examined, carefully tested in order to prove the quality of something or in order to prove the quality of somebody. And the word was even used back in the day to test the genuineness of metals or or coins even. So like Job, these men were tested and examined by God and they came forth as gold so they could be ministers of the gospel and stewards of the gospel. And so, in, in fact, by the way, the word approved means they not only were they originally approved to do this job of a steward, but they stand approved. They're presently approved. This is an ongoing approval by God in one sense. And so they continue to be fit for the service of the gospel. Now, does that mean they were naturally this way? Were they naturally fit to be servant, stewards of the gospel? Do these men just seem to have it somehow, that maybe they're superior to other people? The guys that are stewards of the gospel are superior to other people, and they're naturally that way? Well, let me say this. No one, and I mean no one, no one is naturally fit to be a steward of the gospel. No one is naturally qualified to be a steward of the gospel. Such a person does not exist. People are made stewards. They're made to be fit by God to be a steward. Let's take the case of Paul, the Apostle Paul. By his own testimony, prior to his conversion, he says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I used to be a persecutor of the church. I was a violent aggressor. He went after the church. In fact, it says he was trying to destroy the church at its very foundation. Now, how could a person like this person like this, uh, someone trying to destroy the church, how could they ever be fitted to be a steward of the gospel? How is it even poss- possible? Well, it's because Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord, there's the answer right there, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say this, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, he says. The foremost of sinners became possibly the greatest of stewards of the gospel. Now, understand, Paul was not naturally fit to be a steward. It doesn't happen that way. God saved him by his grace, and he made him fit. He made him fit to be a steward of the gospel. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, I am not even fit to be called an apostle. He knew where he stood. He knew he'd been saved by grace. He knew what he did before he was saved. He knew all that. He said, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's always the grace of God, isn't it, in our lives? Who among us can say, yeah, we've arrived, right? It's only by the grace of God that we're even saved. But we do anything for him at all. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain didn't prove vain. 
1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Considered Paul faithful. Paul, Paul passed the test, the examination, putting me into service. Paul, God used Paul in the service of Christ, considering him faithful. You know, if you're going to be, if you're going to entrust someone with something valuable, you better choose the right person. Don't just choose anybody to do certain jobs. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were men that could be trusted and entrusted with the gospel because God knew, because his grace was working in them, they would carry out that trust. Stephen, you and I and Mike and Ronaldo and Bob Carver are not apostles. I hate to inform you of this. We're not apostles like Paul was, but nevertheless, God has not ceased to entrust the gospel ministry to men. By the way, it's not just apostles. He entrusted the gospel ministry too. He also, Paul speaks of the pastor as a steward. You know that? Titus chapter 1, verse 7. The overseer, the pastor, must be above reproach as what? As God's steward. He's God's steward. An overseer is God's steward, which means he's not self-appointed, by the way. He doesn't appoint himself to this job. If, if, you know, if anyone, anyone would dare appoint himself to the job of a pastor, it would be a fool, an absolute fool. In Acts 20, 28, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, the, the Ephesian pastors, he said, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's made you overseers. To do what? To shepherd the church of God. Elders are not self-appointed. Don't ever think that a person can appoint himself to the, to the work of the ministry. You're going to end in utter failure. Some, how does it work then? Somehow God in his sovereignty, somehow God in his sovereignty works in the lives of people, in the lives of men, and sets them apart from the ministry. How does that work? I don't know. I can't explain it, how he does this. I just know that God works to save sinners, Stephen, like you and I, and then he grants us the grace to do this particular job. It's only by his grace, a job we don't deserve to do. We're not better than anybody else, certainly not. By the way, everybody's got their calling it from God. Some do one thing, God calls some to do another. God expects each one to do what he and his providence leads them to do. In this case, Stephen, God has led you to do this job. It's his, it's his calling upon your life. Now, Stephen, you've shown evidence of the fact that God has entrusted you to this particular calling of the gospel. And the local body here has recognized that. A very important step, by the way. Church has to recognize that individual to be called to the ministry. I know you weren't looking for this in particular. I know you weren't looking, you weren't craving the pastoral ministry per se. Stephen always thought for a while now, I'll be in the ministry, serve God in whatever capacity, but he wasn't looking for the pastoral ministry. I don't think any of us are, by the way. Uh, Think of a lot of things that may be easier in some ways. But God in his providence has brought you to this moment. And that's how I see this. Mike, I think God in his providence, we've talked about this many times. How does God call a person? I think in his providence, he brings people to this moment, however he does it. This stewardship has been laid upon you, Stephen. And, in, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, it is required of stewards that one be found what? Trustworthy. Faithful, right, Jimmy? One be found trustworthy. I know that's a sobering thought, very sobering thought. You know, it says in James 3, 1, not many of you should be teachers, my brethren, knowing that we're going to re- incur a stricter judgment. Yeah. I'm always afraid to do this job in many ways because we're going to be under a stricter judgment for what we say and what we do. 
You might be thinking about right about now, Stephen, now how in the world do I carry out this trust? How do I carry out this sacred trust? Well, I tell you what, it's going to be helpful to remember the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, we have this treasure, this gospel treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's us. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are just poor earthen vessels, jars of clay. That's all we are, is just weak jars of clay. And yet we carry this tremendous treasure of the gospel. And we distrust this charge. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's a very uh, something when you, when you realize the weight upon you to do this. Sobering thought. And Paul asked the question in 2 Corinthians 2.16, And who is adequate for these things? Who's sufficient to do this? Who in the world can do this job? And he gives the answer in 2 Corinthians 3.5, We are not adequate in ourselves. We're not adequate in ourselves. He says our adequacy is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6 says he, God, has made us adequate. We can't do this in in and of ourselves. It can't be done. So we depend upon God to do this job, to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. Outside of that, by the way, this job's impossible. It's all by the grace of God. This is what a steward of the gospel is. Secondly, what a steward of the gospel does, what he does. There are basically two jobs in this passage we see uh, to fulfill as a steward of the gospel. Number one, steward of the gospel preaches the gospel of God. And number two, he serves the body of Christ. Number one, he preaches the gospel of God. Now, why do I use the term gospel of God? Well, because three times in this chapter it says that. Look at verse 2. He says at the end of the verse, We had the boldness in our God to to speak to you the gospel of God. Verse 8. He says, Having so fine an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, also our own lives. Verse 9. At the end of the verse, We proclaim to you the gospel of God. Why does he keep saying this? Well, the gospel of God is a a gospel that proceeds and originates from God, right? It comes from God. There are many false gospels out there. There was in Paul's time, time, in in our time as well. Uh, But there's only one gospel that derives from God. Only one. There's only one gospel that is sanctioned by God. There's only one uh, gospel that is blessed by God, and that is his gospel, the gospel of God. I think, though, the word gospel in this context of this book has a larger meaning than just the idea that Christ died for our sins. He rose again. If we come to him in repentance and faith, we can, we can be saved by his grace. Yes, that's true. But I think here the term embraces all the truth of the word of God since Paul preaches both to the lost in Thessalonica and also to the believers. Now, notice the language used here in relation to the gospel of God. Look at verse 2 the language used in relation to that gospel. He says, we had the boldness in our God to speak, to speak to you, the gospel of God. Verse 3, our exhortation does not come from error. Verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Verse 5, we never came with flattering speech. Verse 9, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. Verse 16, he talks about the unbelieving Jews, and he says they were hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. So it's clear then that one main job of the steward 
is to speak to people with reference to the gospel. That's what he must do. Verse 3 calls it exhortation. Now, exhortation is a word loaded with meaning. It can mean to call out or to call or to cry out or to make an appeal or to encourage or to admonish number of meanings. Paul and his companions made an urgent appeal. When they got to Thessalonica, they made an urgent appeal to the unbelievers there to come to know Christ. They preached the gospel to them. So in a word, exhortation is preaching. And that's what a steward of the gospel does. He exhorts people. He preaches the gospel to them. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, he says, Paul says, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also perform, performs its work in you who believe. So this is what, Stephen, this is what a steward does. He preaches the gospel of God, and an understanding of your stewardship will influence how you preach. And how will it influence how you preach? Well, first of all, you'll be able to preach with confidence as a steward of the, of the mysteries of, of the gospel. Verses 1 and 2, you can preach with confidence. Verse 1 says, chapter 2, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, says that phrase a lot, that we, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. They had it rough when they went to Philippi. Don't you remember that? The Philippian jailer, they were, thrown, they were beaten, they were thrown into jail. They sang praises to God at midnight. They had a tough time in Philippi. And then, when they got to Thessalonica, they had another rough time there, right? They spoke the gospel of God amid much opposition, he says. They rarely, rarely seemed to have an easy go of it, by the way. Everywhere they went, they had a difficult time. Acts 17 describes the opposition at Thessalonica. Read Acts 17 if you want to find out what happened there. There was a mob that formed because of Paul's preaching. The city was in an uproar. They, uh, the house of a believer was attacked. They literally dragged Christians out in the street, to the authorities, all kinds of opposition. When this opposition came, what did Paul and his companions do? He says this, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in spite of the opposition. So when the going got tough, what did they do? They preached with confidence. They preached with boldness. That's what a steward of the gospel does. Now, Stephen, for you, the opposition may not be a hostile crowd, Maybe one day. It may not be a hostile person who doesn't know Christ and who hates the gospel, who's an atheistic and all this. It may not be that at all. It may be, however, from a disgruntled church member who has his own agenda to promote. Have we ever seen that, Mike? Disgruntled church members with their own agenda to promote. Here, I'm here now in your church. Here's what I want to do. Well, how about you do what God wants you to do and what the Bible says for you to do? We've talked, we've, we've dealt with this. This opposition may come from a person coming to the church trying to create division in our church. Happen, Trying to preach false doctrine in the church. That happens too, Stephen. What will you need in these types of circumstances, whether it's from a hostile person you're preaching the gospel to that doesn't know Christ, or whether it's from a church member who's maybe just as hostile, you're going to need boldness and confidence to confront the situation. Now, how do we get that? Do we just dig down deep inside and draw up this great courage that's somehow lying inside of us? That was a better way. We do what Paul did. We find our boldness in what? In God. That's what the verse says. We find our bold- He's a source of boldness. He's a source of confidence. 
You know, how do we even get up here and preach anything at all, knowing how inadequate we are? We pray for confidence. That's what from God. We look for confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him. It's always in Him. We don't ever put confidence in ourselves to do this job. We don't do that. We trust Him, right? Paul, even Paul the Apostle requested, you know, times, there were times when Paul was afraid, by the way. He requested prayer for boldness. Did you know that? Got a request for prayer? I need boldness. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, he says this, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And I say if Paul had to preach for that, or Paul had to pray for that, rather, then we have to pray, pray for it, not any less, right? So, Stephen, can you preach the gospel as, with confidence? Yes, you can. God gives his stewards uh, confidence to do that. As a steward, also, you'll, you'll be able to preach with sincerity. Verse 3, you can preach with sincerity. Verse 3, Paul says, Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Um, you know, from the sound of this verse, it sounds it's possible that Paul and Silas and Timothy were accused of being less than sincere in what they were saying. If so, he defends these exhortations uh, these, against these three lies that are presented to him. First of all, he says, Our exhortation does not come from error. The word error means to wonder from the truth. And, and there were many false gospels around then that were born and developed in error. By the way, there are many false gospels today that are born and developed in error, not the gospel of God. Uh, but Paul is preaching the gospel of God. He didn't make this up. He didn't move from it one inch. He didn't change it at all. This is the same gospel that God originally gave. His concern, by the way, in Galatians 2, his concern is for what? The truth of the gospel, right? He talked about the truth of the gospel. That's what he's concerned for. In fact, it's Paul who spends so much time in all his letters, as you read them, what is he doing? He's, he's pointing out error. He's warning of error. He's correcting error, constantly doing that. He certainly didn't, his exhortation didn't come from error. Secondly, he says, our exhortation does not come from impurity. And I believe here he's got reference to impure motives. Paul didn't have any ulterior motive in preaching the gospel. Why would he go through all this suffering, all this misery, you know, go into a town, preach the gospel, and get run out of town. Go to the next town, preach the gospel, get run out of town. Why go through all that if his motives were not pure? doesn't make any sense at all. So they accused him falsely if that's what they did. His whole, test- his whole life is a testimony to his pure motives. And so he's able to declare in Acts 23.1 before the council, he says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. How many of us can say that? That we've lived in perfect, with a perfectly good conscience before God until this day. Can you say that? Paul was able to say that. The only motive Paul had, the only motive Paul had was to exalt Christ, whether by life or by death, Philippians 1, right? And then he says our exhortation does not come by way of deceit. It doesn't come by way of deceit, by trickery. We're not trying to trick anybody. It was the Puritan Thomas Brooks who said this, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. Present the bait and hide the hook. In other words, Satan tries to trick people, right? He tries to trick people. people Paul was not trying to trick anybody with his message. He wasn't using a bait-and-switch tactic. He was the, the, genuine, the genuine deal. Not some religious charlatan out there trying to do his, uh, his own gospel. As I said, those people existed then. They exist now. There's an ever-growing 
the population of people who are preaching the false gospel. But in denying these three charges, Paul's saying he can preach the gospel amid much opposition. He can do so with a clear conscience because he's telling the truth of God. He's completely sincere about what he's saying. Totally sincere. And Stephen, that's what a steward of the gospel does. Your job is to simply preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, in total sincerity. And that's what God's given you to do. So as a steward of the gospel, you'll be able able to preach with confidence. You'll be able to preach with sincerity. And thirdly, you'll be able to preach with a view to pleasing God. A view view to pleasing God, verses 4 to 6. It says in verse 4 at the end of it, we so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our, our authority. You know, so he's trying to preach with a view to pleasing God. Now, for the most part, the, what's presented here in these verses are it's from a negative standpoint. In fact, there's four negatives used here. And I'll, for the sake of time, I'll run through this quickly. And, and here's the thing. If you're seeking to please God in your preaching, here's what you will not be doing. If you're seeking to please God in your preaching, here's what you will not be doing. Number one, in verse four, you will not seek to please people. That's what it says in verse four. It's not your goal. That was never Paul's goal. Galatians chapter one, verse 10, Paul said, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Who am I trying to please here anyway? Trying to make the person happy on the pew there, or am I trying to please God? If I were still trying to please men, he says, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Not be a bondservant of Christ. What do you want to be? A servant of Christ? Bondservant of Christ? Or do you want to please men? What do you, what's it going to be? Steward is, it's an easy choice for the steward of the gospel. He's going to preach to please God. Not pleasing God, by the way, was one of the reasons Jonathan Edwards was fired from his church after 22 years, one of the greatest theologians ever in the history of America, fired from his church after 22 years because he, didn't, he was ready to please God, uh, God, not man. But if that's what it takes, then so be it, right? We're not here to be people pleasers. What else does it mean to preach with a view to pleasing God? It means you will not resort to flattery. Verse 5, we never came with flattering speech. didn't come with flattering. Paul refused to compliment people in order to gain an advantage over them to accomplish his, his selfish ends. He didn't do that. never did that. By the way, it was common among the philosophers in the ancient world. They would compliment people, street corner philosophers. They teach their philosophy. Compliment people to gain a hearing. People would like their ears tickled, right? Paul never did that. He preached the straightforward truth of the gospel. No, no ulterior motive here at all. Thirdly, you will, you will not stoop to greediness. You won't stoop to greediness. Verse 5, he says, you know, we didn't come to you with a pretext for greed. God is witness. <clears throat> you know, they, they, Paul's motive in the, in the ministry was not to get financial gain. How many times have you heard this? Many today who, who use what appear to be, appears to be preaching or religion, although it's a false gospel, and what's their motive? To gain wealth, right? They gain wealth off people. They often succeed, by the way, because people have little discernment and hearing these days, and so they are taken in. They're gullible. Paul didn't do that. His friends, he and his friends even worked to pay their own expenses at Thessalonica. They didn't ask for any money. Look at verse 9. He says, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. 
God knows the truth in our motives, doesn't he? And even if people accuse us wrongly, God is witness. He knows. So you won't stoop to greeting. You, won't, you, won't, you will not desire applause either. You won't desire applause, verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men. And look how many talk, uh, groups of people he talks about. We didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We didn't seek glory from anybody. That's not what we were doing. There's far too many preachers who crave applause, right? They crave uh, recognition from people. They want people to recognize. They want to be in the limelight. Some people that, beware of the guy, by the way, who wants to be in the limelight, who's a minister of the gospel. Beware of that individual. We, the steward doesn't do that. The steward of the gospel, the true steward of the gospel, wants the glory to go to where? To God, right? All of it. He would never think of stealing the glory of God and claim it for himself. So, Stephen, what should you do? You can't seek to please people when you preach up here or anywhere. You can't resort to flattery. You can't stoop to greediness. You should not do this for the applause of men. So what should you do? Well, verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. We please God who examines our hearts. We should speak in such a way that God is pleased. That's what we should do. He is the one who is examining your heart, by the way. That word examine in the NASB is the same word translated approve earlier in the verse. Steward is one who, who has been approved of God, and as long as he's doing his job, he's still approved by God. However, the steward of the gospel is always under the scrutiny of God. You kind of never escape it. He's always watching what you do, and you're always accountable to him. So we should do what Paul said to do in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself what? Approved to God. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is sacred. This is a serious business we're doing here, preaching the word, right? Accurately handling the word of truth. So what does the steward do? He preaches the gospel of God, right? What else does he do? He serves the family of God. Serves the family of God. Stephen, an understanding of your stewardship will influence not only how you preach, but how you serve. How you serve. What does that mean? Well, number one, you'll be able to serve with gentleness. Verse 7, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. We prove to be gentle among you, Paul says. Now, what's interesting about that statement is just previous to this in verse 6, he says, as apostles of Christ, <clears throat> we had the ability to assert our authority if we wanted to because they had authority from God. If we wanted to, we could assert our authority over you, by the way, he uses the word, the plural word apostles there, and that he may have had Silas in mind, but however, that's a discussion for another day. We're not going to go into that right now. And, Paul, and I hope that none of you go away thinking only one thought, who's the apostles he's talking about? There's nothing more going on in the passage than just that, okay? Now, apostles were authoritative. They had their authority from Christ, but they chose to be gentle among the flock of God, right? They chose to be gentle. That was their attitude. That's a model. For us who are stewards of the gospel, that's a model for us. We should treat people with gentleness as opposed to harshness. Now, there's a time and a place to warn people, yes. There's a time and a place to call people out if they're trying to harm the church, yes. Harm themselves even, or harm their family. Paul does that in his letters, by the way. He calls people out for preaching false doctrine. But the way God would normally have us to deal with people in the family of God and the church is with gentleness and with grace. 2 Timothy 2.24, a verse Mike and I have talked about many times. 
The Lord's servant must not be what? Quarrelsome. But he's to be kind to all. Kind to all. He says, he goes on to say, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. How do we correct people? Beat them over the head? We do it with gentleness, right? Now, there's, like I said, time and a place to call somebody out if we need to. Yes. But the language here in 1 Thessalonians is that of a family. As Mike has been talking about the family and adoption. Here we get another passage with family language. You have a nursing mother. You have children. Look at verse 11. It speaks of a father and his children. So what's, what's being said here? Well, Paul sees the church as the family of God. He sees the church as a family. It's a spiritual family. And we're to treat each other in the church in that, in that way, in that regard. So your brothers, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ here. You don't beat them over the head or treat them harshly, right? You love them. And, and Paul, that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.1, appeal to older men <clears throat> as fathers. Appeal to them. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. Why? This is a family, right? Spiritual family. Just because we preach with confidence, it's not our confidence, it's God's confidence. Just because we preach with the truth, just because we don't seek to please men, doesn't mean we have to be harsh and ugly and crude to each other, right? We don't have to be that way. No, the image here is pre- presented is of apostles, the guys that led the church, the early church. <clears throat> it's, it's the image of a mother nursing her baby, cherishing her baby. That's the, the image that's presented here. So that's how the church is. We're to cherish the church, love the church. That's how our steward of the gospel is to view the church. Not easy to do all the time. How else do we serve? Not only with gentleness. Stephen, you'll be able to serve with sacrifice if you are a true steward of the gospel, and I know you want to be. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Again, this tender language of the family uh, atmosphere continues. Paul and his companions said they had a fond affection for the Thessalonians. The phrase fond affection actually means to greatly desire, to long for, as I think uh, probably ESV you're reading out of, affectionately desirous, I think you read. That's what it means. That term even was found on an ancient grave marker, by the way, to describe parents who were longing for their deceased son. So this is more than a passing acquaintance. You know, the church had become very dear to Paul and his companions. It was more than just preaching the gospel to them, although that was very crucial. More than that, being a steward of the gospel meant to serve the family of God with sacrifice. They wanted to serve the family of God with sacrifice. We were, he says, we were well pleased to impart to you our own lives. This is the attitude of love that motivated Paul and his companions to impart or share, as the word means, their lives with Thessalonians. And not only did they share the gospel, they shared their very heart and soul as well. And that's what you're called to do, Stephen, as a steward of the gospel. Think of the church as the family of God you're ministering to, just like you would your own family, to be gentle with them. Uh, yes, harsh, uh, not harsh, but sometimes having to exercise discipline in your own family, yes, but always in love, right? And so you share your life with them. So they see, by the way, not only a talking head, but a guy who really cares. And by the way, speaking of the family of God, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this. As Mr. Carver told you yesterday, I agree 100%. What, make sure that you care for your own personal family first and foremost as a minister of the gospel. Your own family, first and foremost, don't neglect the church. Don't neglect your family for the church family. That's a huge mistake. 
that a lot of guys commit, by the way. I've always told you guys this. You know this. I strongly believe your family comes first, not before Christ, but before the ministry of the church. 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5, as you quoted yesterday, Stephen, in our questioning of ordination, the overseer must be one who manages. He's a steward, right? He manages his own household well, it says, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? How can you take care of the church of God if your family's all out of whack? can't happen. You know, with all your sharing of the gospel and sharing your very life with the, the, the family of God, don't neglect your own personal family. Don't do that. You can't be a good steward of the gospel if you don't heed this scripture. This is very important. I can't emphasize this enough. So a steward of the gospel is one who's entrusted with the valuable possession of the gospel. And he's one who preaches the gospel of God. He's one who serves the family of God. That's what he does, Stephen. Now, I want to say a word to all of you who have been listening in our conversation. Forgive me for talking to him privately all the time. You say, well, I'm not a preacher or a pastor, so I guess this has nothing to do with me whatsoever. Don't say that. Don't ever say that. Although a pastor has been entrusted with the gospel in a special sense because he's overseer of the church, right? He is God's steward. It is also true that everyone who knows Christ has the responsibility of discharging the gospel. Every one of you who knows Christ has that responsibility. You too, as a member of the body of Christ, have an obligation to serve the body of Christ and share your life with them, with others. Don't excuse yourself from the ministry that God has given you because you're not a pastor or a preacher. The Lord expects all of his people to share in the gospel ministry. Stephen... As your father, I'm very thankful for you. I'm thankful for Matthew and Daniel as well. And your, and your mother and I love you guys with all our heart. We truly do, always have. Stephen, you finished your seminary training. I know it's been rough, seven, what, seven, eight years in seminary, something like that, trying to work a full-time job and have a family and all this. You went to college before that. Mr. Carver was brutal on you with Greek, taught you Greek, though. But we thank God for Mr. Carver for doing that. You studied hard. You testified of your calling to the gospel ministry. Your gifts and calling have been recognized by the leadership of this church and by the body of Christ in general, this church. You've successfully completed your ordination questioning yesterday, and tonight we're going to lay hands on you and ordain you to the gospel ministry. I pray that the Lord will enable you by his strength to carry out the ministry of the gospel which he has entrusted to you. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight uh, for this opportunity, grateful for Stephen and and for how you've used him, Lord, and how you've uh, blessed him in his life. Uh, We just pray that you will use him in in the gospel ministry from this day forward, Lord, to bring glory and honor to your name, not to himself, Lord, but to your name. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.